Hello and welcome back to another episode. If you are listening for the first time, then thank you for being here. You really have chosen a great moment to join. This is Roots to Roots, where I get the honorable opportunity to speak to some of the greatest minds that I have come across, who are all dedicated in some way to creating a positive impact on the world around them. And my job is to uncover how their family roots and those all-important moments in their upbringing have influenced the legacy that they want to leave behind. Today's guest is particularly exciting for me. Dhruvan Patel is someone I've personally known for over a decade now, and what he's managed to achieve over those years has been astonishing. Dhruvan is an optometrist turned entrepreneur whose work is encouraging us to have a healthier relationship with technology in the digital age. He's the founder and CEO of OcuShield, the company whose medically approved blue light filtering products and protectors have helped transform many, many, many thousands of people's eye health and quality of life in over 70 different countries. What I love about this story is that it's an idea that Druvin came up with whilst he was still at university back in 2010, and having received a development grant from City University of London, he's built OcuShield into a globally successful brand. But the accolades have only continued. His product has featured in nearly 50 publications, including Forbes, The Guardian, and USA Today, it's made its way to Dragon's Den, where he won the support of Peter Jones and Tej Lalvani. And more recently, OcuShield was awarded the prestigious King's Award, as recommended by the Prime Minister and approved by King Charles himself. But what would a success story be without its humble roots and its ups and downs along the way? In this episode, expect to learn about the rough surroundings of Druvin's upbringing and the key decisions that he made that shaped the way his future turned out the very different roles that both of his parents played during his childhood, making the decision to go all in on OcuShield, what the experience of Dragon's Den was really like, and the many other nuggets of wisdom that I could get from him. If you're someone who's inspired by the story of a visionary, but someone who's simply just motivated by his own curiosity in a field that he loves, and you want to understand what that type of mindset it takes that can get you there, then this one is for you. If you're listening but not yet subscribed and you're happy to support the show, your follow will help us to carry on increasing the quality of the guests and the overall content. Plus, it takes just under two seconds to do so on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening. But for now, ladies and gentlemen, I bring to you Dhruvin Patel. Drew Mattel, the Croydon Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> as you have been referred to. Yes, I'm not too, not too sure about that title, but... <laughs> well, I know we're going to dive into why you may have been labelled as that, but I want to start off with just some of the accolades that could give a flavour of why that title may have come about. You have featured in various newspaper articles, including the Evening Standard, which is where I saw that title given to you. But aside from that, you featured in Cosmopolitan, Elite Daily, USA Today, Daily Mail, Glamour UK, Refinery29, Thrive, and very recently, in the last few months, the great achievement of winning the or receiving the King's Award for Enterprise. And you got to meet the King himself, which is, you know, it's nothing to sweep under the carpet in terms of a level of achievement that, you know, most people will be very proud of. What I want to ask is, before we dive into that Mark Zuckerberg element, I want to touch on the Croydon element. What do you know of the story of your previous generations that led you, and I assume your family as well, to have ended up in Croydon? Um, so it starts with my, my parents, basically. Um, so yeah, Croydon, I don't know why they chose Croydon out of the whole of the UK. Actually, I do know. <laughs> there was a community of Indians that was growing in that in that region and you know what it's like back in the 1970s when my parents actually moved to Croydon it's you know phone a friend where are you this is where we're at is it a good you know can we reside here and that that was the kind of their journey but um yeah my parents and my mom and my dad are both Indian my dad spent a lot of his time in Nairobi in Kenya um so a lot of East African heritage he spent a lot of his time working there and then you know met my mom in India for an arranged marriage and um, my my dad's dad was actually, so my granddad, who I didn't get to meet because he passed away before I was born, he was actually um, 
involved in kind of uh, issuing birth and death certificates. So he he traveled a lot with the government, let's say. Um, and my dad used to always tell me about traveling on ships. And he's like, you know, it used to take me like 30 days to reach another country and we'd just be on a ship this whole time. I just find fascinating altogether. Um, but yeah, once once they had the arranged marriage, they came to the UK and decided to settle in, in Croydon where they've had uh, me and my older brother. And that's where life began for us in Croydon in Thornton East. Your older brother, who I'm also familiar with. But So with, with your parents' story, were they born in East Africa or India? Both in India. Okay. And then why did your father end up spending so much time? Like where was that link that he had to East Africa? So it was basically because in India at the time there was a lot of poverty and there was a need to earn money effectively. Again, similar to the story of them coming to the UK, they had friends in East Africa where somehow they communicated with them and said, right, there's some opportunities here. So why don't you come across and, you know, earn some money here? And that's what, that's what effectively they did. It's amazing because, you know, my background and the reason, one of the reasons that I'm so interested in this conversation with you is because we're both Indian by background, both raised in London. I also studied optometry for a year and then decided to jump ship or change course. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, Very yeah. interesting. And then we obviously went to the, the same university, which is where we met. But going back to that part, so looking at my own family history, when I investigated this, it's also how this podcast came about. There was one thing, which is there were Indians that went over to East Africa because it was part of the, the colonial movement that happened where almost Indians were promised this American dream opportunity in East Africa and they were sent across, ended up building the railways, but it wasn't quite the land they expected. There was, you know, I think 3,500 deaths in the building of these railways. But then there were the other cohort of Indians that went across because they were following that opportunity that India didn't have at the time. So one group were kind of pushed to go there and the other guys received the pull of the opportunity. That is an entrepreneurial mindset, right? To take that kind of risk. Mm -hmm. Is that what you see in your parents when you look back now that they did possess a bit more of this or you know your dad at least this this risk-taking mindset to think I see an opportunity somewhere where I don't have it here and I'm now going to try and jump at that I think for my for my father especially at the time so he's he's the complete opposite of a risk taker okay um and for him the reason why he ended up there was he followed his father's footsteps and for him, his father was, you know, effectively very, very important to him. You know, I, I know he took a lot of learnings from him because he saw his father working, doing a, a kind of a government job and being well looked after in the time. He followed him to, to wherever he went and said, right, I'm going to come to East Africa with you um, and do what we need to do to put food on the plate and then take it from there, really. And what was your upbringing like? It's difficult to answer because you, you look at different spectrums, right? You compare to what others have and don't have. And if I'm to assess my upbringing now from where I'm sitting, I'd say I, I had a very good upbringing, right? If I look at, you know, most people that suffer from PTSD or some form of mm. dysfunction in the adult life, it's because they've had trauma as a child, whether it's um, divorced families or broken homes or, you know, not being able to support Maslow's hierarchy at home. But if I look back, you know, yes, we did have issues, but I had a very, very loving mother who showed a lot of affection. And that's why one of my love languages is very much the physical touch. It's because, as you know, being brown, you know, love is not a word that's spoken. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's sometimes shown in other ways, right, which is through physical touch or acts of service, predominantly very much so, right, cooking, cooking yeah, food for true. their children. For me, yeah, really felt that from my mother's side. And, you know, both my mom and dad worked very hard again to just look after me and my brother. And I just remember all they did was they just worked. They just worked all the time. They came home, made food and then rinse and repeat. And, you know, we went on a handful of holidays that I can remember. In the later years, we kind of started wanting, we started asking me and Sam and my brother, we were like, yeah, let's go, you know, abroad. And we started going, you know, went to places like Dubai and India. Um, and then also America once, but, you know, with my parents, that's probably kind of the three regions we've been to. Other than that, we were doing, you know, Butlins or Pontins mm. in the UK, for example, which I loved, right? Like it's something that I really enjoyed because, um, yeah, it was, it was so fun, so much entertainment, entertainment value. 
so yeah in that sense we had a really good upbringing you know there were some challenges in the sense of my dad he uh, you know again a very typical brown father-like figure doesn't speak about anything at all when it comes to emotions or mm. um you know in terms of raising a child you know in terms of direction i think the biggest direction my dad used to give me and my brother was you know one one statement which was like always be the best mm. or like these, these really these really <laughs> funny <laughs> statements that like you just rinse and repeat again but yeah. never said anything else unfortunately one of the challenges we did have was my dad suffers from obsessive compulsive disorder now we as a family we all know he suffers from it so his his ocd is around um cleanliness so it's his personal cleanliness so it's he can spend two to three hours in a bathroom both morning and night but also how he interacts daily with, let's say, family members. You know, he wouldn't want to touch myself, my brother, or even my mother, you know, unless wow. it's unless it's on his terms, right? Yeah. Like you've had a shower, you've cleaned your hands, or, you know, all those things. So if you imagine from a, I guess, a love perspective, if my mother's provided lots of physical touch and then you've got my dad, which is slightly challenging. Um, and, you know, there was a period when we were young where he was also very loving, caring. We'd sit on his lap and watch TV, but then slowly that started to change because his OCD took over. Um, so, you know, that played a big part in, at home, you know, my parents, they had a lot of disagreements and, mm. you know, it was very challenging. So, you know, because if you imagine an arranged marriage where, um, again, two, two different people fundamentally, um, someone going through a mental health issue, which they don't want to accept because, Again, being brown and being a male, you don't, you don't, mental health issues aren't really a thing. No, right? it's, seen, yeah. <laughs> it's seen as very inferior, almost a sign of weakness. Yeah. So, you know, even to this day, we can't um, get him to accept that he has something which is okay and we can get help or he can get help, but because he can't accept it, there's, you know, you can't get that help. Right. But yeah, internally as a family, we had to, you know, me and my brother had to nurture my mom and dad's relationship. We had to help them bring them together sometimes because of this the clashing at home and that was difficult. Um, that was a difficult part. But as I say, overall, you know, looking back, I think we, we still had a very good upbringing, you know, compared to what else is out there in terms of the lottery, right. Of, of where you're born into. I think we had a, uh, yeah, we, we were quite lucky in that sense. Yeah. There's an element of proactivity or, you know, to put it in another way, you see there's room for improvement and, and you want to make a change or there is, is, you know, the fight and flight. It's something that Stephen Bartlett talks about a lot when it comes to leaning into a change that you see happening versus leaning out. And I think that's, that's really something that you did with OcuShield. But before we get into that, you know, just looking at your schooling years, what were your friendship groups like? Do you find you tended to gravitate towards people of a similar background or if you knew what mindset your mindset was then to that kind of people? Or did you almost feel like isolated in terms of the type of friends that you were quite different to them. Yeah, so at school, uh, in Croydon, so I went to Archbishop Lanfranc and Mitchum, um, predominantly 90% of the kids were either Afro-Caribbean or from an Asian background, okay. South Asian background, and then 10% were Caucasian or white, right? Um, which is quite the opposite of most, most regions in the UK. I had a lot of, you know, my friend circle at school was very much so I had a lot of South Asian friends from Indians to Pakistanis to whatever else um but as well as that you know had other ethnicities um but in terms of fitting in i think um yeah i I didn't really have a problem with fitting in in the sense of you know at the time in terms of mindsets i think everyone there was one there to you know generally go to school they they you know they weren't really striving for excellence everyone Mm. was kind of just going for the motions i mean included i I didn't really see the value in GCSEs. You know, I knew, I knew education is important, but I remember we were doing our GCSEs and, you know, as a friends group, we were so laxed about it. We were getting a pizza made and we were running 10 minutes late to sit an exam and the pizza got made and we had to run down the road and we're like half an hour late for an exam. And I'm like, well, if I, you know, one, that, you know, I could have done a lot better, but two, what if I missed it completely and then didn't get a GCSE? But it's, those kinds of risks that we took because we didn't put too much value on the GCSEs. And that probably shows from my, my poor GCSEs I get, because I got, I get one A, eight Bs, two Cs in the U. But um, this is not a message to uh, inspire kids to underperform GCSEs, but <laughs> it shows that it's not the end of the world. It's not, yeah, it's definitely not the end of the world. I think from then I did realise that I had, 
again, for my GCSEs, I, I didn't really study that much. And I think I had a bit of common sense. I, I realized that actually I, I have ability which allows me to understand things. And if I put effort behind it, I know I can achieve something greater. Was when I went to A levels, I was like, all right, now this is hard. Yeah. <laughs> That's when, you know, uni was hard, but A levels for whatever reason. And I think it was because I didn't pay too much attention as well in GCSEs, but the leap in academia, I found really challenging to that ASA level road. But yeah, in terms of my friendship group, you know, we were, we were all very much so around um, making sure we had fun at school. I think fun was a big part. There was a lot of um, acute, I guess, danger in our school, as we call it. You know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of gangs in 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 our area. Um, so even from walking to to school to walking back home, you had to navigate if you're going to be running into trouble. Um, and if you did, it's just one of those things where it it gets to the point in in our school journey anyway, that you were quite accepting of it. <laughs> it was like people, you know, people asking you for money or or, you know, trying to, to rough you up to say, all right, you know, you need to give me something. Mm. And, um, and then also getting, getting caught in the crosshair of, yeah, gang violence, you know, are you, whose side are you on? And, you know, you're like, uh, no one's side. Yeah. And, you know, we had, we had, our school was interesting was we used to take students that had been expelled from other schools before. And that meant we had kids that, you know, really didn't want to be there. And they'd do things like take the head teacher's car, bring, you know, uh, weapons into school and all this all this kind of stuff and thankfully I didn't hang around with you know too many of those troublemakers but you were you were around it right you were around it you, they'd be in the same class as you um so yeah f- that that was kind of a, a flavor give you a flavor of kind of what the school environment was like at the time what what do you think kept you from being influenced by trouble shall we call it and also looking at the point at where you decided to maybe get a bit more serious with your future yeah, I think it's really fine margins and I, I didn't make a conscious decision. Mm. It was a subconscious thing where I realized uh, like I was still involved with gangs indirectly because I'd be hanging out around with them. You know, if uh, let's say in the evening after school, I'd be hanging around those kinds of different um, cohorts of people who would class themselves as a gang. Yeah. Right? You know, sometimes got involved in I'm walking down the road, but because I'm affiliated with them two two people on bikes that were the opposing gang they were attacking us with knives in their hand and I'm just there like trying to get out of the way, right? Yeah. You, but it's, it's these kinds of acute battles that were going on um, at school. But as I said, something in me, you know, I, I realized that my parents were spending a lot of money on me to do private tuition, for example. I kept seeing how hard they worked. You know, my mother worked um, or still does work at Tesco. My dad worked at Allied Carpets, so a very manual labor intensive mm. jobs. And I always just thought, oh, they work so hard. I want to be able to give back to them. And for me, I didn't know what it looked like, but I knew I had to find a way to to create impact to then create a financial reward for them. Um, but yeah, it was all subconscious. But I, I I knew that you know that that life of doing nothing or causing trouble that wasn't for me back in my mind. I, I knew it wasn't for me, um, so I had to do something else. I love that, and I love how you say that. You know, something something in you, even if it was subconscious told you that you need to do something where you want to create an impact. And that's already quite a strong sense of self-worth or even purpose to hold. And I know, you know, something that you said before is that I always knew that I wanted to help. Where do you think that attitude stemmed from? If I look back at what makes me happy, what makes me smile, it's if I touch and feel if I'm around people and I've helped someone, there's an immense sense of gratification that I get. And it might be selfish. But I also understand, like, for me, I'm just like, there's nothing better than that feeling of helping someone. And I realized quickly that if if I can do something, and that's why I went into optometry, was one, because it had the um, ability to help others, right? You give the gift of vision, which is, you know, to be, to be able to see is, is one of the most important things in our lives, right? And a lot of, and, you know, what, some of what, what I do with OcuShort is, is reminding people that our eyes are, a, you know, a true gift. And we, unfortunately take them for granted until something goes wrong um we almost wake up and we're like yeah we can see they're working um but yeah the fact that i saw we can help people with that was was really important to me um and that's why i went into the profession as well as that and the ability to be entrepreneurial in that profession i was like right two things that i really liked i'm going to go ahead with pursuing something in this profession 
It's amazing. And something you mentioned about that feeling of happiness, it reminds me of um, Simon Sinek's book, Leaders Eat Last. And one of the points that he brings up is the role of oxytocin. And he gives a really simple example of, I think he was referring to himself, where he said that he saw that someone had dropped a bunch of papers, you know, on their way across the road. So naturally, he wanted to help them pick up the papers, right? And that feeling that he got from that small act of kindness that wasn't demanded of him gave him that boost of oxytocin. The lady who was helped in the process, the feeling of being helped by someone gives her a boost of the same oxytocin. And on top of that, someone passing by who saw that act of kindness, it also gives them that same boost to then likely go on and feel more obliged to want to do the same thing for someone else. It's why we love, you know, some of these shows where, or, you know, a perfect example, like a Mr. Beast video or one of those YouTubers where they've just decided to randomly give, you know, a $400,000 tip, maybe exaggerating slightly, right? But those videos do well because we love random acts of kindness, even if they're staged, because it's still the act of kindness underlying it. So I think even, even in what you're saying, it you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be framed in a selfish way because I think there is a chemical role of why kindness leads to happiness, which ultimately leads to a, a longer and more fulfilling life. But, you know, it's amazing to not only just think like that and, you know, from knowing you for so many years, you genuinely are like that. But to find a way to integrate that into your passion and career that makes money and helps people, it's, it's inspiring. So let's get into Oculus So you, as I know, you graduated in optometry. And then to begin with, you started working as an optician? Yeah, so so my journey with Oculus began actually whilst I was studying. So when I was studying back in 2013-14, I, I basically did some research on how artificial light from screens or lighting sources affects the eye's physiology and circadian rhythm, so effectively our eye structures and sleep and wake cycle. And quickly I found that consumers, including myself, by looking at screens, I could potentially get eye strain, headaches, but also suppress melatonin, making it harder for me to have a well-rested or fall asleep and have a well-rested sleep. So you, me being a student using 10 screens a day, I was just like, oh, this isn't very good. Um, and it was kind of the iPhone 3 slash 4 era. Mm. And I thought screens only get bigger and brighter. If I'm thinking like this, then something in me said, automatically someone else will be thinking like this. <laughs> so I said, let me do something about it. And um you know, I entered into a cast business school competition, which will see spark where they say submit an idea and across the multiple stages, um, you know, you can win some funding. And, you know, I went through that process with just an idea of taking technology that existed in glasses for prescription glasses and putting it directly onto a device, you know, in terms of a material that's a filter, screen filter or protector. And um, yeah, I went through the motions, won the grant funding. And in that 18 months of when I was going through the motions or win that funding, you know, I remember I took everyone's email address down that I ever met. And in January 2015, I put a Wix website up and I said, right, let me just turn everything on for pre-order. Mm. I've created the specification. I've created the, the brand at the time. Was it called I Sleep Easy? You know, that was the first name. It was a terrible name. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was launched with VocuShield. And um, somehow I got about a thousand pre-orders from, wow. from all these people that, I'd interacted with and at that time pre-orders and like that Kickstarter kind of stuff that was early on like Kickstarter and Indigo came on afterwards but the fact that and again emails back then open rates were a lot higher right you you wouldn't get spam like now you do right. now right you're just ignoring tons of emails <laughs> so I can see why people um, were receptive of it. and yeah with that had the initial funding to mass produce the first batch and from there just started kicking along and um, I fully qualified as an optometrist in 2018 so I'd been doing the business from my bedroom for three years and, you know, evenings and lunches and, you know, from pick packing the product to customer service to whatever else. And I said, right now I've got the opportunity to go full time on the business or open a Specsavers joint venture. Was that they were knocking on the door saying, hey, Drew, do you want to open a, a Specsavers store? Again, coming back to impact, I said, well, with a Specsavers store, I only can test 10 or 20 patient sides a day. Or even if I have a few of optometrists there, that's another 10 or 20 patients a day, right? So let's say 100. But with the business, I could impact hundreds of thousands or millions of people's right. eyes a day by, you know, potentially creating products that help them with their eyes. So at that time, I said, right, I have to go with the business, OcuShield. And I went full time in 2018. And then from there, further on, there's a, there's a second part to that journey of, of where we are today. This is the bit where 
breaking the mold of cultural norms is something that you know separates a lot of people who have bright ideas from the ones who go on to make a difference. There is a really interesting book called The Triple Package, and it focuses on three areas where there's almost a disproportionate advantage that goes to certain cultures because of the way their values and belief system is set up. I want to focus on the other aspect that it talks about, which is the downsides of it. Because you know the way we're raised, and you touched on it before, there's this focus on doing well in education to get that respectable job, everything that you know you were well on the path of doing. But what it also does is it almost sets this conventional ceiling because a lot of the way that some of these belief systems are set up, and you know, coming from Asian backgrounds, it's chase that conventional signs of success, like the well-paying job, but more out of the case of we almost fear failure rather than chasing that huge upside, right? It's the way that a lot of the, the mindsets are driven in kids is we need to do well to not fail. Along that journey that you took, a lot of the time you could end up upsetting or having to challenge against people who are wondering why you're kind of breaking out this conventional route of success because who knows what's on the other side of that door. Was this something that you saw you face in your early years? When I started in my early years, I didn't face objections because I was doing it with my, my studies and working as an optometrist. But when I met or made the full-time leap, then definitely there were some questions asked on, is this the right decision? You've just qualified. You know, you could be earning X amount of money doing this full-time. Why have you studied this whole time to just then kind of drop it in, 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 in an instance, right? Um, so there was definitely some challenges around that. I remember the conversation I had with myself at the time. I said, if I can grow this business and just make the same salary I do as an optometrist, I would have succeeded in what I'm trying to do mm. because I wanted to create something of value that helped people. But then also if it allowed me to uh, fulfill the financial obligations um, in that sense, then I would have satisfied, you know, let's say parents and say, right, well, you know, I'm earning the same amount that I would be if I was working as an optometrist, which right. is probably what they cared about. right? Um, so I remember that I had that conversation with myself and I still, to this day, I use that as a very much so grounding element to myself to say, right, I, I'm seeing so many people do amazing things, which is great to see and it's inspirational. And I know there's so much more levels to grow, but also I remember the fact of actually when you started, Reuven, you know, the only thing that you said to yourself was you'd be happy if you were able to replace that salary and you can work full time. And yeah, that allows me to remain grounded and you know, remember, put me in the perspective of the shoes I was in in that time. And one of the milestones you managed to hit was to get onto Dragon's Den. What was that experience like? It was probably one of the most challenging things I've done because it's, it's a really complex you know, show to be on because you're not only being judged personally, but you're also being judged commercially on a business, which, so, you know, coming back to what I had, it, what was running through my mind before entering the den was, right, one, this is a great opportunity, right? But two, also, right, was um, our brains are very much wired to be negative mindset. Mm. Look at all the problems, look at what could go wrong. And it's very much so, right, if I, if I go into this pitch, I, you'll become a meme overnight <laughs> to, you know, won't get your words out. And then you fluff the whole pitch and it affects your personal credibility and also your business credibility, right? If, if you've got someone that can't get the pitch out, you know, how good is their business? And then also being ridiculed or having lots of negative feedback from the dragons would then put a down on the business. So all these things you thought of and then also, you know, the millions of people that will be watching this back on yeah. home and it's something you, you won't be able to you know, I guess, get rid of because it's there in the public domain, right? So you're, you're almost second guessing yourself thinking, right, there's all this pressure where you have to make sure that you do a fantastic job, the best of your ability, but still you can't control the outcome because you've got five dragons who have their own opinion and perspective. So all of that's quite daunting. But the biggest challenge was being able to get up there and pitch in that pressure cooking environment because it's one take. We were in there for an hour, 30 minutes. You, you see a 10 minute version of the pitch um, but yeah, you know, you, you are absolutely mentally exhausted after that because you've just been having to focus for one, one hour and a half straight and questions left, right and center, and also be cognizant of how you're standing, how you're responding to a question, you know, how is the viewer going to see this on camera? all these 
you yeah, know, subtle yeah. things are going through your mind. So managing that and executing is why I say it was probably one of the most difficult things. But now that I've gone through that process, I think bank can say, now that I've done it, I know I can do anything else because that, that was such a pressure cooking environment for me that, you know, I, I know um, anything in the future that gives me those, those feelings of nervous energy, I can, I can go on and hopefully smash out of the park. One thing that came out of that is you did get two dragons on board, but you took the decision to turn down the offer because how, how well the company was growing. Was that a tough decision to make? And what do you think gave you the courage or where do you think that courage or self-belief that you can turn down an offer that you know some people may have found very difficult to do so, where do you think that came from? Yeah, you know, at the time it was a difficult decision because all you can go with is your gut, which is effectively, you know, those different complex signals your body is giving you based on all the different interactions you've had there. At the time, you know, of course, I did not know if it was the right or wrong decision for the future. As you said, you know, we could be working with a fantastic um, entrepreneur who could open doors, could help the business. But on the other side, I had to, I had to look at commercially as a business is this the right decision you can get very caught up in thinking like all right these are dragons everyone's going to see the show they're going to they're going to ask are they on board how's it to work with them it was me thinking more about the ego or the opinion of others rather than the business decision from a business decision it was very black and white to me that actually it's not the best move going with a dragon because not only did the business grow and the valuation that they would invest in was really weak or poor, but also they had some clauses which weren't very founder or management team friendly. But if you, from an ego perspective, it's like, oh yeah, I'd be, I'd say, I'd be able to say I can speak to Peter Jones or Ted Daly or, you know, all those kinds of things, which actually that didn't serve its purpose to grow in the business. It was more of an ego thing. So I think as I was able to separate those two bits out, um, the decision for me was quite easy, but of course I felt gutted afterwards. After I sent the email saying, "Guys, we're going to have to pull out. It's not. It doesn't work for us." You know, you feel a bit deflated because you've gone through that whole process for six months of negotiating. You've done the the den airing. Yeah, you know, we turned it down and we we made the right decision in the long term. Was we ended up raising just under a million pound from private investors at much better valuation than with the dragons. And coming back to your question around self belief. Yeah, it was just looking looking at it at face value and you know, it was a very much a black and white decision and taking out other bits around ego in the decision. That, that's what allowed me to right, make the decision that was right for the business. I want to lean into one of those points that you mentioned, which is kind of a, a, an offshoot of that bit on ego. There's a quote, and I can't remember who it's by, but it says that people will admire you when you take these kind of risks and they see you on this, this growth journey because they remind you of pursuing the dreams that are similar to theirs. But people will start to resent you when you reach the top because it reminds them of the dreams that they gave up on. As you were growing and as you had the exposure to Dragon's Den and you know, as I mentioned, the, the King's Award that you got, did you feel any of that pushback from either people that you knew or people that you didn't know where you started to see resentment creep in where you didn't expect it to come from overall i'd say no um you know i've kept close family and friends since starting since starting the business and you know it's it's quite interesting with my friends that are not in the business world or commercial world you know when we meet up it's very much so about having a good time and having a laugh and you know we we try not to speak too much about work because we're so busy having fun right Mm. which is how i prefer it anyway and you know being on this kind of business journey um, you find your pockets of people to converse with and speak to about business challenges or wins because they understand it. I think in this journey, you you can it can be really difficult if you want to speak to your friends about business, right? Because if you have someone that's in a in a role or a job role which they don't have the highs of a business, you know, being in a business or even the lows of a business, it's very hard for them to console or advise on the lows but also also very hard for them to appreciate the highs especially if you're you know you might be continuously getting highs right i've always i've always very much so you know spoken about business with people that understand it and you know if friends asked then i'm happy to share but yeah 
I almost don't share on purpose because it's, you know, I like to enjoy the bits around with friends where we can just get together and have a laugh, right? Uh, which is fantastic. But yeah, I think in terms of resentment, to your point, it's really interesting because you, you do have a lot of more people supporting you in that initial period. Mm. And then once you start to get bigger and you're winning, people are like, okay, well, this person's, you know, effectively made it. They don't need my support. Or there might be elements of what you talked about, which is resentment where they may have get, given up on their own, you know, dreams or endeavors, which, yeah, I, I can definitely feel a bit of that. But, you know, no one's going to come out and say no. to me, right, <laughs> that. But yeah, I can definitely feel a bit of that. And um, it, it makes total sense because I think every day we're battling with, you know, our own responsibilities, our own life and we're making decisions you know do i want to pursue something that's really risky or do i carry on doing what i'm doing which is you know i've got golden handcuffs and it's providing for me and the family and it's difficult right it's difficult and um it's just one of those decisions that everyone has to either make is you know which path they'll go on and it's always never too late to, to change what path you're on right yeah i love that it's a very good point that it is never too late and the journey that you've taken you know everything that you've spoken about from your early childhood years uh, through to this schooling and university, you'd have been exposed to all groups of people, you know, people at school who didn't want to take education seriously. Then you go through university. And then even when you start your professional career, there would have been people who are driven at work to do well um, in order to get a promotion, whatever it may be. And people who kind of are just there for the ride and cruise through. And then you see people like yourself, especially as you push through the entrepreneurial journey, who have taken that risk to break out of that steady career to do something. What do you think characteristically it takes for someone to leap through that barrier of being even hyper-focused, but in their lane to doing what you did and maybe pushing outside the box with a risk where you don't know what's through the other side of the door? So I think for someone, so just to reiterate your question, how is it someone, can someone transition from somewhere where they're focused in kind of a, nine to five job to something where it may be risky and something that's unknown. Yeah. Or have you seen any specific character traits or any, you know, even similarities in their background story that are common amongst these people who do make that leap? Yeah. I think there's some really key characteristics and one is just resilience. I think it's, um, and that resilience comes from Again, younger days, the childhood, I think a lot of people that have gone through resilience can make the best entrepreneurs or best change makers or do something fantastic in the adult years because they've been used to fundamentally being kicked down a hundred times, right? So I think that resilience piece, and for me, I'm trying to figure out where my resilience comes from. Um, My my resilience, I'm just trying to think what what I might have been kicked down on when I was younger. Um, I can't think about what that might be, but I think I feel the the purpose of trying to do something for my parents to, to you yeah. know, make them happy and re- give something back. That's what pushes me forward. So, you know, you've got either those really negative things that push you or you've got something that's really positive and you're trying to attain, which I think mine stems from. Um, so yeah, the resilience is one. And second is sometimes you've got to have a little bit of um, just having the blinkers on, just not, <laughs> not caring about what's happening outside. I think when you become so focused on a goal, you then reap the rewards because things tend to fall in place like dominoes. Um, you know, very much so with the business. I didn't have a I didn't have a business plan. I just had a goal that I wanted to create this this product. And once I created that product, that's when things just started to fall in place in, in terms of a domino effect. And I think if you're very hyper focused about creating a product or creating some change and you just work towards it without thinking about the outside KPIs or metrics, then you know, then you can make, make it happen. Right. And then everything else that happens on top is a bonus. Yeah. I love that. And, you know, it's one thing that I've heard you say, which is that I'm one of those people that when I have an idea, I don't think too much about it. And you frame it in the context that there are pros and cons to doing that. But it's something that I admire because I think it's a massive driver in making those quick decisions or making those big decisions that some people may fear to take. And don't quote me on this exactly, but it's one thing that when I first heard about it, it's always stuck with me. I think it's Jeff Bezos in his, it's a stakeholder letter that he gave in uh, quite a while ago. It's probably like the late nineties. And he talks about the power of decision-making, right? And uh, you may have heard this, but you know, he classes it in like type one decisions and type two decisions. 
type one decisions are those where it can be reversed. And type two are ultimately those ones that are almost irreversible. What he says that a lot of people and companies now, I think he was framing it in the context of companies, that they're excessively focused or hyperweighted towards the type one decisions where they feel that it's irreversible and it's not, and then it kind of stunts them making that that push forward. Do you think that it's something that has always been with you where either that you're able to distinguish between these type ones and type twos, or you know, you've built into your mindset that if I take it and it doesn't go the way it's planned, it can reverse. Yeah, no, it's it's a very good point there. You know, I think um with a lot of what I've done in terms of business decisions, again it comes back to kind of the gut and, you know, being agile, right? Being a small business or start a business, you have the ability of less stakeholders, less less people's opinions to discuss uh, with the topic about and that allows you to move quickly. Um, ultimately, I hold, hold the trigger on that, mm-hmm. um, which is the beauty of innovation, right? And, you know, I'll give you an example. Like we've in December last year, after kind of 12 to 18 months of work, um, we launched an online eye screening platform that allows employees to screen their eyes in under seven minutes. Now, we've always been in physical products. We've never done anything digital. After speaking to employers, like a dozen HR directors, and finding out that only 2 to 6% of employees actually get their eyes tested, I thought, oh, wow, we all use our screens to work. Sorry, we all use our eyes to work on screens, but no one's getting their eyes tested. And that's a huge problem. And again, I had a gut feeling was saying, well, actually, we could innovate in this space. We could do something. And just from that, again, not doing any further market research or validation, we created a solution. And now it's out in the market and we've got companies like Aon and Charles Tierrett utilizing the service, right? Um, but it comes back to, you've just got to, yeah, there's something within you that, that gives you that, that feeling to, to go and explore. And as you said, the worst thing that could have happened in that scenario was no one would have wanted it. And we would have been like, right, cool, we tried this, but no one wanted it. But now the upside is actually people want it and it can cause massive growth in the business. And it's something exciting and sexy to talk about. Yeah. I think, um, there is a time and place for different decisions. And I think um, definitely some decisions are bigger ones, which can make a bigger impact and they need slower times to think about it or more time to think about it. But um, with most things, I think it's reversible, right? So do it quickly, test and then turn it off if it's not working uh, or carry on if it is. Yeah. I mean, he says here, I just want to quote it because he said it way better than I could, but you know, most decisions aren't like that. They're changeable, reversible. They're two-way doors. If you've made a suboptimal type two decision, you don't have to live with the consequences for that long. You can reopen the door and go back through. Type two decisions can and should be made quickly by high judgment individuals. So like you say, it's still off the basis of knowing, you know, what you're doing and you have a business partner who you talk really highly of, and I'm sure you've got a great team around you. So you, you mentioned the, some big names there, and that just puts into perspective the scale at which this is growing and you know anyone that knows the business will see the kind of numbers that it's doing and how you were able to turn away from an opportunity like Dragon's Den and you know some of your investors if I look here you know Rubik's Ventures and then you've got like ex-Balenciaga and Gucci group leader James MacArthur I think also Jason Ellis president of GameStop and Dan Martin if people know that is uh, an Olympic cyclist but the point I'm getting there is when you start having some of these names that are backing a product that you know, for sure you've believed in over years and you've gone through Dragon's Den. Do you ever get that feeling of how did I end up here? And whoa, do I really know what I'm doing to have these names and these ventures backing me? Yeah, you, you definitely, you know, in, in, in my shoes, I definitely feel sometimes there is a bit of imposter syndrome, right? Yeah. You do get to, hold on, I've never been trained for this. <laughs> do I have the the right skill set or know how to manage these new stakeholders that are coming on board and supporting me with their funds and time. And you sometimes do think, and I have thought myself, right, um, you know, can I do this? Am I, am I qualified? And again, that's that kind of devil on one of the shoulders creeping in. And you've just got to look at, again, the real positives and what you've done in the journey. The fact that people of those that caliber at the foundation of it wanted to support and invest in me um, was fundamentally, you know, they, they invest in businesses, but they invest in the founder. Um, that's what the mandate is generally of investors is they look for the person behind mm. the company. So 
I've got to take that and say, right, they invested in me, so of course I can deliver what they want, right, um, and use that as confidence. But yeah, look, there's definitely days when you, you do question yourself, when things are hitting the fan or you're not quite reaching the targets that you want to. Um, but that's that's the part of the journey, which is, you know, you go through those lows to then experience the highs. And, you know, I always tell my partner that, at the moment, she asks me, you know, she asks me, um, are you excited for the holiday that's coming up? Are you excited for this? And I'm like, no, not yet. <laughs> ask me on the morning of that um, holiday, for example. And being a founder, I've got to this point where I try not to react to the highs and lows. So I very much so, so keep myself on a steady line. And that, that might be good commercially for the business. But then I think about, is that good for me personally? Because if I can't appreciate the excitement of life, right, was life supposed to be enjoyed? Then am I truly living? Now that's a, a big kind of deeper question, but it's something that has captured my attention kind of in the recent right. recent months. But it's, you know, that's what happens in being a founder. You create these mechanisms for you to be resilient and be able to go on the trajectory that you want to go on. So talking about that trajectory, what is the plan in the long term? What would you ultimately like to see this grow to or your own personal path? So with OcuShield, you know, my, my ambitions are to create a leading digital eye care brand. So as everyone knows in the UK, when they think of eyes, they usually think of Specsavers. We want to change that narrative for the newer generations, right? Gen Z, Gen whatever that's coming up. We want them to be able to name OcuShield as that provider for any eye care related products, but also service. And that's our grand vision. Um, you know, by 2025, Five, we want to hit a target of protecting 10 million eyes. You know, that's what me and the team are focused on, relentlessly trying to reach um, those many people and supporting those many people. But yeah, we fundamentally exist to let eyes thrive. Wow, I love that. Is that a patented uh, slogan? <laughs> I love to say it is. I don't think it is, but maybe maybe we should trademark it. <laughs> Let's think about that. And uh, I feel... You know, rude as in, I don't feel rude not to. I actually want to. I want to talk about your partner who you mentioned because the brief things you've told me about her, you talk very, very highly of her. What role has she and does she play on keeping you in check? Um, so, first and foremost, I think my partner, you know, she's a fantastic human, very kind, very, very giving. I remember the reason, the point when I fell for her, I, I was re always reiterated back to her. I said it was because. I remember I, I came to meet her somewhere, which was like one and a half hours away from my home. Um, and she drove also the same distance. And she said, oh, instead of you getting a train, I'll, I'll drop you back home. I said, what? You want to drive an extra one and a, hour and a half that way and then come back on that. So it's a total three hours for you to get back home. She said, yeah. I said, no. <laughs> and I said, yes, because I thought she wasn't going to do it. So I said, yes. And she dropped me home. And I was like, she really is a kind, caring human being, like fundamentally. And um, yeah, that, that's what made me, uh, you know, one of the key reasons why I, I, it kind of cemented things for me was like, that. that's the kind of person I want around me, right? And she's, she's a great individual, but um, her mother always says this to her is, you know, when she, when she saw me, she said, Druvin, the only thing he wants in life is peace. And um, my partner brings me a lot of peace, which I think is very necessary in the kind of journey I'm on because it's so dynamic and so demanding the ability to have peace with your partner where it's not chaotic if I went home to a partner which caused undue stress which I've had in, in the past right it just would not work um, so for me having someone that that is my peace and I can enjoy my time with and again can keep me grounded but she's a psychologist so she <laughs> she can work with the mind in that sense as well unpack things even if I'm having troubles um, so, you know, call it, call it your personal shrink in that sense. Um, <laughs> it, it's fantastic, right? So for me, you know, it's quite nice and amazing that I found someone that can support me in that way, but also is a great human being. It's exactly, I can confirm to her that that is what you've told me offline as well. So you're, <laughs> you're not just saying this for the, uh, the microphone and the camera. I'll give you five pounds later. <laughs> <laughs> I've just upped it actually. No, but thanks. Uh, thanks so much for, you know, everything you've shared. There's a lot that I learned about you more than I expected to learn, but it's really clear that OcuShield has a, a very, very honorable founder and there's no reason, there's no surprise actually that it's doing so well. So were there any final comments that you wanted to share? No, I, th I think I'm good. I think, uh, yeah, ha had a really good discussion. I think um, thank you for asking those probing questions that can allow, allow me to get out what's, uh, what's in my mind. Anytime. And we have a closing tradition where 
from previous guests, I tell them to submit questions and then I, I keep a full list of them and I take two that I think, oh, these would be really good to, to put forward to today's guests. So if you're ready, I'll uh, ask you the two. Yeah, go for it. So question number one is, how do you deal with sad days? One is being around my partner. <laughs> I think that takes me out of any, any rut generally. Um, so that's one thing. Um, secondly, I have to focus on myself. If I'm having sad days, I'll do something that can, you know, change the energy. So that's, you know, doing some exercise, for example, or doing something that makes me happy or laugh, watching comedy on YouTube, like something really stupid, but actually just watching five minutes of a stand up comedian, just like, right. all right, you know, breaks that cycle of, you know, negative thoughts. Um, and then also more, more recently is just maybe having a coffee actually. Sure. I never used to drink coffee, but in the last 12 months I've started, I'm hooked. I was hooked on mockers because I'm a, a big, I'm a big sweet tooth, but, um, yeah, I've started to drink a lot more coffee because that feeling it gives you of, you almost feel, um, unbeatable because of that energy lift you get. And, you know, I drink, drink a coffee here and there on, uh, in a week. So maybe a couple, couple cups, uh, a week but um yeah that those are my kind of go-to actions to beat any sad day that's amazing i love that i uh yeah i feel bad that you turned down my coffee offer earlier than now <laughs> i've had my one for today so you ah, know fair enough, i try yeah. not to have too many and Keep it's, it in uh, check. Nice. it's late afternoon so you know uh, that coffee might might affect my sleep <laughs> question number two what is one thing that you've become comfortable accepting about yourself that i'm not that I don't need to be a certain way for people. Um, and I'll give you an example is, you know, when, when I'm at an event or I'm at something, I can leave whenever I want, you know, if I feel tired or I'm exhausted or actually I want to rest, I just, you know, I make the conscious decision to, to leave on my own terms. That makes me really happy because actually rather than dragging something out where, you know, you have a great time and then things drag on um, and you may not want to be somewhere, but you're being there because you're being polite. Mm -hmm. um, but also you're not giving your full 100%. People can tell, right? If you're, if you're somewhere where you don't want to be, people want to tell. So rather than causing uh, not being consciously there, just politely say, you know, I'm going to head now. Uh, but yeah, so for me, it's just being ha having the power to be able to, you know, share that amongst, you know, friends, family, acquaintances and saying, right, you know, I'm happy to... Uh, make this decision whether it's leaving an event or or something else thank you very much Juven. it's been a true pleasure to have you here and well you know i don't know what limit the sky is for uh Shield, but i look forward to seeing it grow awesome, awesome. good luck thanks, man. thanks for having me hey just a final quick thing from me firstly thank you so much for tuning into this episode but more so you have my extra gratitude because you've listened right through until the end that tells me that you found something useful or valuable in this conversation that meant it was worth listening to. If you haven't done so already, please do hit that subscribe button so that I know that this was a good episode and so that I can bring you more of the same with bigger and better guests. And with your follows and your reviews, that's going to help me do just that. That's all from me and I really look forward to seeing you on the next episode.